But our scripture reading this morning is in John, the book of John, chapter 12. And we'll begin in verse 27. So John 12, 27. He says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Let's pray. Father, the crowd asked, who is this son of man? And we ask this morning, as Stacy preaches, would you show us who is that son of man? Would you show us Jesus, we pray. His name we pray, amen. How do you handle the truth when you don't like it? How do you handle the truth when you don't like it? I recall the setting here, we're still in the context of the triumphal entry. Jesus is ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey. It's Passover week. It's a very public uh, setting. And he's signaling to everyone whenever he does this that he is that Messiah King prophesied by Zechariah. He is that one. And the people, there's a crowd there, they receive him as such, right? They hail him as the king. There's a lot of excitement. It's a lot like when uh, somebody just wins an election. And, you know, everybody's excited, except that Jesus lets them know that he's not what they're voting for at all. Nobody seems to see this. Nobody wants this, even though the light is among them and the light is on. And the point is that they want this strong king to lead them, and Jesus keeps saying things that disappoints them. Things like how he has to die to deliver them. You know, like in the last passage, the one right before this, how like a seed that has to die before all this life comes up to accomplish its great mission. Or here, how he has to be lifted up to die. Jesus keeps telling them the truth, and they keep not liking it. So how do you handle the truth when you don't like it? It's a cool story in the Old Testament, Second Kings 5. Naaman, he's this Syrian commander, and he's got leprosy. He's got this problem. He can't, you know, couldn't be cured. And so he hears from, um, there's this Jewish slave girl who tells his wife, who the, the word comes to him, that maybe Elisha, the prophet, the man of God, can do something about it. And so he goes to be healed. It's a, a fun story. You should, if you haven't read it recently, you should check it out. A lot of humor in it and all of that. But in, in any event, he goes there, and um, Elisha doesn't even come out to greet him or anything. What he tells him is, if you're going to be cured of your leprosy, you've got to wash seven times in the Jordan. 
You got to, you know, he's telling him, like, you got to become a Baptist, okay? Like, like seven times over. And he doesn't like it. And he thinks it's stupid. And, you know, he's offended by it. It's beneath him. It's, like, ridiculous. Um, but it was the truth. And when he did it, he was healed. Psychology talks about this, you know, the stages of grief. How do you handle the truth when you don't like it? Uh, psychology has observed this, you know, in the, in the study, in the field, that people go into denial and anger and negotiation and bargaining, right? It says a lot about you, how you handle the truth when you don't like it. What do you see here? Kirk read this passage, and the, the people who just, you know, just a minute ago are hailing Jesus as king. You're the one. You're the, you are that Messiah King Zechariah prophesied about some 500 plus years before, and all of a sudden they're becoming less sure. Uh, there's the triumphal entry, there's the great expectation, and then if you've ever heard the air come out of a balloon, you know, the it's, it's a little bit like that. And so, maybe a bit counterintuitive, the first thing that we encounter in this passage is prayer. Jesus prays. His prayer covers verse 27, the first part of 28. Look at that again with me. He says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. See Jesus' request right out of the gate. A couple of things to note. Again, we're going to harp on this a bit. It's public. right? He's praying out loud. He's in this setting. It's very important in, in this passage to observe that. It's still the setting of the, the triumphal entry with the crowds, and so they hear his prayer. Um, it's also transparent. Notice how he leads. It's not super formal, you know. He's not like trying to approach it in a certain way that all the, you know, T's are crossed and the I's are dotted. It's transparent. You see how he's doing. He's troubled. So not in a good place. It's a strong word. It's a word, think of a word that would signify for you revulsion or horror. Like just something that you, it's, it's hard for you to stomach what you're about to encounter. Uh, it's, it's the prayer of somebody, it's the description of somebody who's in agitation. You, if you remember uh, Psalm 42.5, my soul, why are you cast down within me? Why are you in turmoil within me, right? Everything going on is just inside of him is just in turmoil. It's turning over. He's not in a good place, so it's very transparent. But the content of his prayer is like the thing. You notice right away what he doesn't pray for and what he does, what he doesn't ask for and what he does. You notice what he doesn't ask for? <clears throat> he does not ask for an escape from his hard mission. It's the hardest of the hard. Nobody's had a more difficult Mission. That's why he came. That's why he sent uh, from the Father. But what he does ask is that the Father will glorify his name. He asks that the Father's name will be exalted. And he knows all of this turns on his willing obedience. It all turns on the execution of this hard mission. So as he's praying and, and he knows what he's about to face and he's contemplating what's before him, right? He doesn't ask for an escape. He asks for what the Father wants. Glorify your name. Now he's prayed out loud, and at the end of verse 28, we 
we read of the father's response. The father answers. And this is what it, it says. It says, then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Again, this is a public response. This is a voice came from heaven. That's what the text says. It means audibly. They can hear it. And what the Father, the way the Father responds is He says, and, and this is in response to the request, glorify your name. And He says, I have, and I'm going to do it again. I have, meaning throughout Jesus' public ministry, who He is and what He's done. But I'm going to do it again. And He, men, and he means through that, throughout, through Jesus' passion ministry. Through His suffering, His death on the cross, and the defeat of death, and His exaltation. Right? His, his, his resurrection, all of that. And so He the Father responds audibly. The next, the, the crowd responds to this and they're, they're confused. It's that voice. They don't get it. And, and the problem is, it's not that the voice uh, lacks clarity. The voice is clear, but they don't get it. It's not clear to them. And so they speculate about uh, that voice from heaven. It says this in verse 29. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. I mean, the father speaks and they can't discern it. So they've got two theories. Neither of them are any good at all. One is, well, I think it thundered. Uh, this is a very modern approach, what I like about it. You know, God does something and people go like, I think this is natural causes. Or I think this is coincidence, right? Has to be. All these people who, um, you know, sort of pursue God and then whenever he... Uh, reveals himself at all, don't see him anywhere, don't discern him anywhere. So they say, well, it's, it's probably a coincidence, right? It's probably something natural that happened in concert with Jesus' prayer. Shrug it off. Other people can discern that it's a voice because they say somebody's spoken to him, but they say it's an angel who spoke to him. Now, the reason that's such a bad theory, how many times does did, did Jesus say Father in his prayer? said it twice, you know, uh, Father, what shall I say? And Father, glorify your name. And they're standing around going, well, that must be an angel who spoke, right? He prays, the Father responds, he prays, calls out the Father's name, and they miss it. Um, maybe not their best moment. So anyway, they're confused, and they show it, and Jesus answers their confusion. He does it in kind of three ways, in verses 30 through 33. He starts off, and he gives them the reason for that voice from heaven, the, the reason that it comes off audibly. And he says, this is for your sake, not mine. Now, that's curious, isn't it? The idea that Jesus would start his prayer and say, uh, my heart is troubled. I'm going through it now. And the Father answers that. And Jesus says, this is for your sake and not mine. Well, what do you make of that? Now, keep in mind, Jesus prayed out loud. How, how is it that, that that's for their sake and not his if Jesus is the one who says that he's troubled? Well, there's actually a pretty good answer to this. And uh, it's, I, there's a, a guy, a, commentary, a commentator, very brilliant guy named D.A. Carson. And so what you hear is really his. And if you wonder, well, like, are there pieces of this that are yours, Stacy, and some of this is D.A. Carson's? It's all D.A. Carson right here, this little section I'm going to give you. Um, but, but I really liked it, so I'm going to share the rationale. I did put it into my own words because it felt kind of icky just going a big, long quote, okay? But so go back to the issue. Make sure you've got it framed clearly in your mind. If Jesus is troubled and the Father responds to his prayer, how is that for the crowd's sake and not his? 
when, when the Father's answering his prayer. And he notes, he says, well, it's not that there's no benefit to Jesus whatsoever, but if you think about it, Jesus didn't need that audible response from the Father. He knows the Father loves him. He knows the Father hears him. Now, it might have been comforting. I'm sure it was to hear the Father uh, respond. But then think about the disciples. How much would that help them clear everything up whenever they looked back? Because think about what Jesus is doing. He's connecting his death to God's glory. Those two things are going together. And the disciples don't get that, and the crowd doesn't get that. Jesus keeps talking about his death, that's confusing people, it's frustrating people, and he's connecting that to God's glory. And when the disciples look back after the cross, after the resurrection, this is going to make sense to them, the Father's confirmation of Jesus' prayer. Or what about the crowd on hand? When they couldn't discern, even if they couldn't discern the exact words of the Father, they can hear Jesus pray, connecting his death to God's glory, and the fact that the Father would answer that prayer audibly would be a confirmation, especially when he makes that connection. So, he gives them the reason. Like, listen, the reason you heard that is for your sake. It's going to help you. The second way he responds to their confusion is he points out the moment they're living in. In verse 31, he says, Now is the judgment of the world, and now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Funny little word now. Uh, It's the same word it features three times in this passage we just read twice in this verse. Now's the time for the judgment of the world and now's the time for the ruler of this world to be cast out. But it also shows up in verse 27. Now is my soul troubled. What's going on right now? What time is it? What's the timing? What's the moment we're living in? Well, it's trouble because the cross is before him and it's triumph. Because it's through the cross that the victory is won. Just pause. We took communion together this morning. Salvation was hard to win. Why is there only one way to God? It's that hard. It's that difficult. So trouble and triumph are connected. Now is my soul troubled because the cross is before him. But then two things come out of that. One, the world gets judged. Now, when he talks about world, the world, he means humanity in rebellion against his creator. The world shows who it is, right? In, in the cross, rejecting God because they reject the son who represents him. And, you know, that Jesus is on hand. He's the light. And that exposes everything. It brings in all of the evidence. This is the basis for that final judgment. D.A. Carson again and I'll, I'll stop quoting D.A. Carson, I'll just do my own work here in a little bit. But he says, very insightfully, the world thought it was passing judgment on Jesus, not only as it perpetually debated who he was, but climactically in the cross. In reality, the cross was passing judgment on them. It's the cross that serves as the basis for the judgment of the world. The second thing that happens, what moment are we living in, he tells them, is that Satan gets deposed. The ruler of this world will be cast out. He's referring to Satan. You can see other references in the New Testament. 1 John 5.19 or 2 Corinthians refers to the God of this, uh, of this age or the God of this world. He's not the ruler anymore. He gets deposed because all of his power gets broken in the accomplishment of the cross. Who you are in your sin 
you know, with, without remedy is under the tyranny of Satan. Jesus broke that link by destroying the power of sin on the cross. Jesus did that. So Satan gets deposed. Now, one more question. How's that now, though? Because if you think about the final judgment and all that stuff, how it all gets finished, you go right to the end, don't you? Like, doesn't that happen at the end, like the final judgment when everything gets closed out? Well, yeah, in one sense, that's absolutely true. It all gets closed out at the end. But the now in this passage is the basis for that. Jesus is troubled now because the cross is before him. And yet it's the cross that's the basis of the victory, of the final judgment. So the time for the hearing, you've never worked with law or whatever, you might even know what's going to go on, but the hearing scheduled way out, right? You have a date set. Well, there's a date set, uh, and that might be future, but as he's approaching the cross, Jesus is saying now. It's right now that that victory is going to be won. This is when it's happening. Now, the third, there's a third thing that Jesus does to answer the crowd's confusion. And he points out the nature of his death. All of this is connected in sequence and what he's going to do through it. Uh, if you look at verses 32 and 33, Jesus is still speaking in verse 32. And he says, I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And then, then the writer of this gospel, John, comments on that in verse 33. He says, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. What kind of death? He's, I will be lifted up. He means I'm going to be crucified, um, and the crowd gets it. You, you can tell this in verse 34 because they don't like it, they object to it, and all of that. Jesus has talked about this before. He, if you remember, if you go back to John 3, Jesus has a uh, conversation at night with a guy named Nicodemus. And before the famous uh, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right before that, he tells Nicodemus, as the serpent was lifted up in Moses' day, so that when people who were bitten by the snake would, would see this symbol and be saved, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So that when people behold him and they put their trust in him, they'll be saved. Now, and then he talks about what he'll do through it. So this is the kind of death he'll die, but what's he going to do through that? He says, I will draw all people to myself. Um, and then there are Gentiles in this context, so he means not just the Jews. But look at verse 20, if you just pop up. Now, who was on hand right after this, after the triumphal entry? Well, there were Greeks there, uh, non-Jews. And then to press the point in verses 25 and 26, when he talks about who, who, who appropriates the benefits and the, uh, of, of following him and serving him, it's whoever serves him, anyone who follows him, meaning not just Jew, but Greek as well. And here he says in verse 32, when I'm lifted up, when I go to the cross, I'm drawing all people to me. This, what is accomplished through the mission of the cross is a worldwide venture. What I'm doing isn't restricted to one people. I'm here on mission for the world. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But the crowd does what the crowd does here. Doubts. Verses 34 through 36, they object and in verse 34, they, they object on the basis of their expectations from the Old Testament. It says, the crowd answered him and said, we have heard from the law. Now here, they mean the Hebrew Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. Like, listen, we've read the Bible, and we, we read the Bible, and what you're saying can't be right. He said, we read the law, we read the, the Old Testament Scripture, and it says that the Christ has to remain. What are they saying there? 
What they're saying is, like, if you're really the Christ, you can't die. That's not what the Christ does, which is a funny thing to say to the Christ who knows what his own mission is. But, I mean, sort, sort of understandable, they could cite something like Isaiah 9-7, anticipating the Christ, and, and, anticipating the Christ taking the throne of David, and it says in Isaiah 9-7, quote, from now on and forevermore. So they can't conceive of anything that could possibly defeat death. If you're going to have this thing forever, you can't die because death would be the end. See, I wonder what could defeat death. I wonder what could do that for maybe everyone. They, They feel like Jesus is creating this unnecessary challenge for them because he keeps talking about things that they don't like. He keeps talking about his death, and he keeps talking about the inclusion of the Gentiles. They don't like either one of those things. How do you handle the truth when you don't like it? What if somebody who knows better than you has something to say that you need, but you don't like, and, but they're right? How do you handle it then? Jesus responds to this, and it's how we'll wrap up the, the passage in verses 35 and 36. He points out the presence of the light, the need to believe, and the danger of darkness. The presence of the light, that's him. The need to believe and the danger of darkness. Look at verses uh, 35 and 36 with me again. Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. While you have the light, lest, uh, or walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Now, Jesus has talked about this before. Remember, we, talked, we said, hey, this is not the first time that Jesus has referred to himself as being lifted up to accomplish his ministry, his mission. When people get that. They know what he's talking about there. This is not the first time he's referred to himself as light. In John 8, he refers to himself as the light of the world. And here he says that the light, meaning himself, I'm only here for a little while longer. I'm not going to be here much longer. The cross is coming. So what do you do? Well, take advantage of the light while it's on. Take advantage of the light in your presence so you could see. Otherwise, it's going to be dark. Look at it while you can see because what happens with the darkness? It can overtake you. If you don't, if you don't know where you're going, you're going to ruin. There's a huge danger in the darkness. Like, right, he says, whoever walks in the darkness doesn't even know where he's going. There's a lot of danger. There's a lot of pitfalls out there. Not the least of which is the end of your story. You could say, well, I didn't fall into anything when I'm walking in the dark. Yeah, but where are you going? You have no idea. It's dark. In darkness, you don't see reality, and you often hate reality. And so he says there's the need to believe. Verse 36, while you have the light, while I'm here, it's still a good time, believe. Believe in the light that you may become sons of light. So the central theme in John, believe. That God has done something, he's sent his son, and it's through Jesus that your great, your fundamental problem gets addressed. And you, can, you can think about your merit, and that's not going to do you any good. Or you can put your hope in Jesus, who's accomplished the victory for you, all by grace. Not your works, but by his work and be saved, be justified. And that's the call, believe. You see it again and again and again in the Gospel of John. 
What should you do? You read the book and it's, it's all about Jesus and you see who He is and what He's done. What's His message? You best believe in Jesus. He's the only way. You want eternal life? Uh, you want to pass judgment? Believe in His Son. That's the one He sent. That's the way. God is being gracious to offer a way, to provide a way for you through to have eternal life and not be condemned. Put your faith in His Son. Believe in the light. To, to remain in darkness or to be overtaken by darkness is to not know. Um, it's to be lost. That's what people in the dark are. They're lost. They don't know where they're going. And here's the light. Believe in the light. Put your faith in Jesus. See what God is doing and become a child of light. Uh, see it in Christ. Come into the kingdom of God where the light is, where the light is on. So what, how, what do we make of the passage as we summarize it? Well, it looks like that the crowd who just hailed Jesus as king is about to make a sharp move away from that. Okay, they're less sure about who he is. I mean, they were fired up about five minutes ago, and then when Jesus explains his mission, uh, the fire's about out. Okay, they're less sure, and the reason is they don't want a Messiah king who in their eyes will fail, who's going to die. In other words, what they have to do to get through, uh, they need a representative to do that. They don't want somebody who will do that and become humble and serve them that way. How do you, what do you make of this passage as we wrap up? Let me give you three things that will help us see a passage about the light. Let me give you three, uh, three things to highlight. The first is the character of Christ. Think about we're in the Gospel of John, and you can start from John 1 and work all the way up to where we are. You remember who he is? John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then throughout, who is he? He's the one sent from the Father. He's the one from God. This is hard. Jesus, at the beginning of his prayer here, says, now is my soul troubled. And yet, as hard as it is, he rejects the glory, he faces the suffering, and he obeys the Father. It's like Philippians 2. The one who had everything made himself nothing so that he could give you what he has. The one who had everything made himself nothing so he could give you what he has. The character of Jesus. This is hard, and he wins it. The one who had it all came down and accomplish this for you. Well, great. Uh, who, who would you put your trust in? Uh, second thing is the dullness of people. You know, we talk, we talk about the greatness of Christ. And I mean here spiritually. I mean, you might have been a whiz on your SAT or something like that. But just in general, we're talking about the spiritual dullness of people. What are they? If you just look at the passage, what happens here? Well, they miss the voice and they despise the mission. They can't appropriate the voice above them. They can't hear it. Or the light before them. They can't see it. Both of those metaphors are in play here. How spiritually, how spiritually dull are they? The Father speaks and they're spiritually deaf. And the light is right there talking to them and they're spiritually blind. It's a problem. Be, be cognizant of that reality. And the third thing to highlight is the importance of responding. Again, all throughout John. Believe. The Christ has come. The light is on. Darkness will overtake you otherwise, but it turns out that the truth is something you really don't get until you take it personally. 
How do you handle the truth even if you don't like it? What then? Here's my prayer for you, is that you'll take it personally. My prayer for you is verse 36, that while you're presented with the light, you will believe in the light, that you may become a son or a daughter of the light, and then may you walk in that light. Let's pray. Father, as we behold the one who was lifted up, the light of the world, may you draw all people to yourself to believe and glorify your name through him. Glorify your name through us as we bear the name of Jesus ourselves. It's in his name we pray. Amen.